0: Peter B. Medawar Advice to a Young Scientist Chapter 2 How can I tell if I am cut out to be a scientific research worker? People who believe themselves cut out for a scientific life are sometimes dismayed and depressed by, in Sir Francis Bacon's words, the subtlety of nature, the secret recesses of truth, the obscurity of things, the difficulty of experiment, the implication of causes and the infirmity of man's discerning power, being man no longer excited, either out of desire or hope to penetrate farther. There is no certain way of telling in advance if the daydreams of a life dedicated to the pursuit of truth will carry a novice through the frustration of seeing experiments fail and of making the dismaying discovery that some of one's favorite ideas are groundless. Twice in my life I have spent two weary and scientifically profitless years seeking evidence to corroborate dearly loved hypotheses that later proved to be groundless. Times such as these are hard for scientists. Days of leaden grey skies bringing with them a miserable sense of oppression and inadequacy. It is my recollection of these bad times that accounts for the earnestness of my advice to young scientists that they should have more than one string to their bow, and should be willing to take no for an answer if the evidence points that way. It is especially important that no novice should be fooled by old-fashioned misrepresentations about what a scientific life is like. Whatever it may have been alleged to be, it is in reality exciting, rather passionate and, in terms of hours of work, a very demanding and sometimes exhausting occupation. It is also likely to be tough on a wife or husband and children who have to live with an obsession without the compensation of being possessed by it themselves. See Hard Luck on Spouses in chapter 5. A novice must stick out until he discovers whether the rewards and compensations of a scientific life are for him commensurate with the disappointments in the toil. But if once a scientist experiences the exhilaration of discovery and the satisfaction of carrying through a really tricky experiment, once he has felt that deeper and more expansive feeling Freud has called the oceanic feeling, That is the reward for any real advancement of the understanding. Then he is hooked and no other kind of life will do. Motives What about the motives for becoming a scientist in the first place? This is the kind of subject upon which psychologists might be expected to make some pronouncement. Love of finicky detail was said by Lou Andreas Salome to be one of the outward manifestations of um. anal erotism, but scientists in general are not finicking, or, luckily, do they often have to be. Conventional wisdom has always had it that curiosity is the mainspring of a scientist's work. This has always seemed an inadequate motive to me. Curiosity is a nursery word. Curiosity killed the cat, is an old nanny saying, though it may have been that same curiosity which found a remedy for the cat on what might otherwise have been its deathbed. Most able scientists I know have something for which exploratory impulsion is not too grand a description. Immanuel Kant spoke of a restless endeavor to get at the truth of things, though in the context of the not wholly convincing argument that nature would hardly have implanted such an ambition in our breasts if it had not been possible to gratify it. A strong sense of unease and dissatisfaction always goes with lack of comprehension, Laymen feel it too. How otherwise can we account for the relief they feel when they learn that some odd and disturbing phenomenon can be explained? It cannot be the explanation itself that brings relief, for it may easily be too technical to be widely understood. It is not the knowledge itself, but the satisfaction of knowing that something is known. The writings of Francis Bacon and of Jan Amos Comenius, two of the philosophic founders of modern science, whose writings I shall often refer to, are suffused by the imagery of light. Perhaps the restless unease I am writing of is an adult equivalent of that childish fear of the dark that can be dispelled, Bacon said, only by kindling a light in nature. I am often asked, What made you become a scientist? But I can't stand far enough away from myself to give a really satisfactory answer, for I cannot distinctly remember a time when I did not think that a scientist was the most exciting possible thing to be. Certainly, I had been stirred and persuaded by the writings of Jules Verne and H.G. Wells, and also by the not necessarily posh encyclopedias that can come the way of lucky children who read incessantly and who are forever poring over books. Works of popular science helped, too. sixpenny, in effect dime, books on stars, atoms, the earth, the oceans, and such like. I was literally afraid of the dark too, and if my conjecture in the paragraph above is right, that may also have helped. Am I brainy enough to be a scientist? An anxiety that may trouble some novices, and perhaps particularly some women, because of the socially engendered habit, not often enough corrected, of self-deprecation, is whether they have brains enough to do well in science. It is an anxiety they could well spare themselves, for one does not need to be terrifically brainy to be a good scientist. An antipathy or a total indifference to the life of the mind and an impatience of abstract ideas can be taken as contraindications, to be sure. But there is nothing in experimental science that calls for great feats of ratioconation or a preternatural grift for deductive reasoning. Common sense one cannot do without, and one would be the better for owning some of those old-fashioned virtues that seem unencountably to have fallen into disrepute. I mean application, diligence, a sense of purpose, the power to concentrate, to persevere, and not to be cast down by adversity by finding out after long and wary inquiry, for example, that a dearly loved hypothesis is in large measure mistaken. An intelligence test. For full measure, I interpolate an intelligence test, the performance of which will differentiate between common sense and the dizzily higher intellections that scientists are sometimes thought to be capable of or to need. To many eyes, some of the figures, particularly the holy ones, of El Greco's paintings seem unnaturally tall and thin. An ophthalmologist, who shall be nameless, surmised that they were drawn so because El Greco suffered a defect of vision that made him see people that way, and as he saw them, so he would necessarily draw them. Can such an interpretation be valid? When putting this question, sometimes to quite large academic audiences, I have added, anyone who can see instantly that this explanation is nonsense, and is nonsense for philosophic rather than aesthetic reasons, is undoubtedly bright. On the other hand, anyone who still can't see it is nonsense, even when its nonsensicality is explained, must be rather dull. The explanation is epistemological, that is, it has to do with the theory of knowledge. Suppose a painter's defect of vision was, as it might easily have been, diplopia, in effect, seeing everything double. If the ophthalmologist's explanation were right, then such a painter would paint his figures double. But if he did so, then when he came to inspect his handiwork, would he not see all the figures fourfold and maybe suspect that something was amiss? If a defect of vision is in question, the only figures that could seem natural, that is, representational to the painter, must seem natural to us also, even if we ourselves suffer defects of vision. If some of El Greco's figures seem unnaturally tall and thin, they appear so because this was El Greco's intention. I do not wish to undervalue the importance of intellectual skills in science, but I would rather undervalue them than overrate them to a degree that might frighten recruits away. Different branches of science call for rather different abilities, anyway but after deriding the idea that there is any such thing as the scientist, I must not speak of science as if it were a single species of activity. To collect and classify beetles requires abilities, talents and incentives quite different from, I do not say inferior to, those that enter into theoretical physics or statistical epidemiology. The pecking order within science, most complicated snobbismus certainly rates theoretical physics above the taxonomy of beetles perhaps because in the collection and classification of beetles the order of nature is thought to spare us any great feat of judgment or intellection is not there a slot waiting for each beetle to fit into Any such supposition is merely inductive mythology, however, and an experienced taxonomist or paleobiologist will assure a beginner that taxonomy well done requires great deliberation, considerable powers of judgment, and a flair for the discernment of affinities that can come only with experience and the will to acquire it. At all events, scientists do not often think of themselves as brilliantly brainy people, and some, at least, like to avow themselves rather stupid. This is a transparent affection, though, unless some uneasy recognition of the truth tempts them to fish for reassurance. Certainly, very many scientists are not intellectuals. I myself do not happen to know any who are Philistines unless, in a very special sense, it is being a Philistine to be so overawed by the judgments of literary and aesthetic critics as to take them far more seriously than they deserve. Because so many experimental sciences call for the use of manipulative skills it is part of conventional wisdom to declare that a predilection for or proficiency at mechanical or constructive play portends a special aptitude for experimental science. A taste for Baconian experimentation is often thought significant too, for example an insistent inner impulsion, to find out what happens when several ounces of a mixture of sulfur, saltpeter, and finely powdered charcoal is ignited. We cannot tell if the successful prosecution of such an experiment genuinely portends a successful research career, because only they become scientists who don't find out. To devise some means of ascertaining whether or not these conventional beliefs hold water is work for sociologists of science. I do not feel, though, that an office needs to be turned away from science by clumsiness or an inability to mend radio sets or bikes. These skills are not instinctual. They can be learned as dexterity can be. A trait surely incompatible with a scientific career is to regard manual work as undignified or inferior, or to believe that a scientist has achieved success only when he packs away test tubes and cultured dishes, turns off the Bunsen burner, and sits at a desk dressed in collar and tie. Another scientifically disabling belief is to expect to be able to carry out experimental research by issuing instructions to lesser mortals who scurry hither and thither to do one's bidding. What is disabling about this belief is the failure to realize that experimentation is a form of thinking as well as a practical expression of thought. Opting out The novice who tries his hand at research and finds himself indifferent to or bored by it should leave science without any sense of self-reproach or misdirection. This is easy enough to say, but in practice the qualifications required of scientists are so specialized and time-consuming that they do not qualify him to take up any other occupation. This is especially a fault of the current English scheme of education and does not apply with the same force in America, whose experience of general university education is so much greater than our own. A scientist who pulls out may regret it all his life, or he may feel liberated. If the latter, he probably did well to quit. But any regret he felt would be well-founded, For several scientists have told me with an air of delighted wonderment how very satisfactory it is that they should be paid, perhaps even adequately paid, for work that is so absorbing and deeply pleasurable as scientific research.